0: so this is the story of a family um, who came to the Bitterroot Valley during the homesteading boom uh, but they uh, it's a story about how they prospered for a time anyway uh, not because of the homesteading boom but actually because of the agricultural the, the boom that was going on but they didn't prosper because of agriculture a um, number of years ago I did a national register sign for um, a property here in Hamilton called the Author Walmsley House. Owners Joanne and um, Henry Nielsen at the time gave me a copy of uh, Author Walmsley's 19, 18 page uh, reminiscence of his 10 years here in the Bitterroot Valley and in Hamilton. It's really a story of gain. It's a story of building community, and ultimately it's a story of financial loss, but um, it's a loss without regret. So I'm really happy to be able to tell this story here in Hamilton where it's most appropriate. So during the homesteading boom, I'm going to just sort of set the context for you because it's important for you to know what's going on. Montana actually, you know, you probably know this, became one of the last frontiers and even before the Enlarged Homestead Act of 1909, many people were coming to Montana. There were uh, boosters that advertised Montana land. Uh, In all different languages, people came from everywhere to try their luck. This particular advertisement happens to be in Polish. But it's just to show you, you know, that people came from everywhere. It was a lot like the gold rushes, except that uh, people came for different reasons than gold. So during this period of settlement, and really even before the 1909 Enlarged Homestead Act was underway, the Bitterroot Valley experienced its own kind of rush and it was apples and not gold that brought people here to Ravalli County. This is just a population statistics that shows you in 1900 the population was a little more than 7,800 people and you can see how it grew uh, in 1910 to more than 11,000 and then it shrunk in 1920 so that's just sort of two to give you an idea. The Valley's especially long growing season was realized very, very early and the first apple orchards in the Bitterroot Valley were actually planted in the 1860s. If you go to St. Mary's Mission tomorrow, you'll be able to see these two trees, which are actually listed on the National Register. They were planted by Father Anthony de Bravalli at St. Mary's Mission right around 1866, uh, later 1860s. They're believed to be the oldest surviving apple trees in the uh, Bitterroot Valley. Thomas Harris also planted apple trees in the Three Mile area in 1866, and the Bass brothers planted the very first commercial orchard, obtaining their trees by mail from Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1870. Removal of the Salish um, to the Jocko Reservation in 1890 opened land for investors, and um, at the same time, refrigerated rail cars made, lo- made long-distance shipment of perishable items much more feasible. And by 1894, the commercial apple trade was underway here in the, in the valley. Investors bought lands for $2 to $15 an acre and planted thousands and thousands of Macintosh apple trees. So during this heady period of um, in the early 1900s, railroad companies began to sell off their unneeded land. New dryland farming methods became popular, and railroads and investors began aggressive booster programs to try to entice eastern buyers to come west. Um, Montana and the Bitterroot Valley was certainly part of these schemes. And I, I really love this little quote here, but it says just in part, talking about the great prosperity belt of the Northwest, which is Montana, where dry farming is opening the eyes of the world where irrigation is showing what marvelous resources have been trodden under cattle hoofs. It's pretty cool. By 1906 the boom was on and during the teens Western Montana had nearly one million apple trees. Bitterroot apples were eventually marketed and sold across the United States. Um, investors, however, jumped the gun, selling tracts of unirrigated land to unsuspecting buyers. The Big Ditch, which was an irrigation project begun by Copper King Marcus Daly, um, it was suspended when he died in 1900 and then it was revived in 1907 under new owners. And so in 1908, the apple boom began in earnest, and by 1910, 70 miles of canal stretched from Lake Como all the way up to, nearly up to Stevensville. Some of you may have seen the presentation this morning uh, about the uh, University Heights. Chicago financiers began purchasing bench land cleared of timber by the Anaconda Copper Mining Company in the west part of the valley in 1905. The Como Orchard Company advertised tracts of land to university faculty in the Chicago area, and Bitterroot Valley boosterism even attracted (coughs) Frank Lloyd Wright, who designed the planned seasonal community Como Orchard, and also the uh, Bitterroot Inn at Stevensville, which burned in 1924, but it was actually used as a venue to house, wine, and dine prospective buyers that were brought from the east. There, of course, is a couple of places that are listed on the National Register, uh, remnants of Wright's work, and I'm not really going to go into that much, but um, also at this time, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, which maybe some of you just heard the the lecture a few moments ago, um, its impact on the Bitterroot Valley was really important and it was an undercurrent throughout the uh, later part of the the 19th century and into the 20th century. It was uh, most severe here in the Bitterroot Valley and um, really plagued early settlers because they didn't know what caused it and they didn't know uh, how to cure it. So in 1912, at the height of the Apple Boom, here in the Bitterroot Valley, Governor Edwin Norris, advised the State Board of Health not to publicize Spotted Fever, uh, not to publicize the research especially that was going on here in the Bitterroot Valley, fearing that it would hinder agricultural development and adversely impact real estate values. So all of this, you know, really just shows that the Bitterroot Valley was a hub of activity during that time period. So, it was into this scene that the Walmsleys uh, would arrive at Hamilton in 1908. Now, Arthur Walmsley was born in Indiana on a farm in 1876, and by 1908, he was married with a six-year-old daughter and working as a wood finisher for the Studebaker Company factory in South Bend, Indiana. And there's a few advertisements of the time period um, advertising Studebakers. He was highly, highly experienced in finishing wood of all kinds for the interiors of these new automobiles. And the industry, of course, this time, 1908, was just now beginning to take off. So um, land agents who were selling acreage in the Bitterroot Valley made their way to the Studebaker factory in South Bend, Indiana and regaled workers with stories of Montana and its astounding agricultural statistics. One of author's co-workers had taken a trip to Montana, all expenses paid um, by the land company, and in order to pay for this trip he was expected to induce his friends to buy land and settle on it. So a Chicago real estate firm had this land for sale and sent an agent to the factory to sign people up. Uh, This agent claimed that uh, some farmers made up to $1,000 an acre on small crops of potatoes and smaller fruit planted in between the the orchard trees. Uh, The agent said that after three years, when the fruit trees began bearing, you could just sit in the shade and watch the pickers gather your crop, and it would be shipped all over the world. He had pictures of trees like this, uh, loaded with fruit. Three co-workers, coworkers uh, from the Studebaker factory, along with an eye doctor acquaintance, signed up and made payment to the land agent. Although the grant, the uh, agent hounded author to also sign, his father had always cautioned him to beware of flowery talk and he stood his ground and insisted that he see the land before he bought it and refused to sign. As you probably know, boxcars were the main way that people moved when they were homesteading, um, and so uh, the other four families had already committed to buying property and needed author to be the last person in the boxcar, so the Wamsleys struck out for a new life in Montana. They didn't have a lot of money. Um, The Northern Pacific agent in South Bend made arrangements for their journey, and they traveled from South Bend to Milwaukee to Chicago and then to St. Paul. But the agent hadn't told them that they would be staying overnight in St. Paul, and so they had the added expense of a hotel room. And not only that, at St. Paul, the Northern Pacific agent told them that uh, the free ticket they thought they had gotten for their six-year-old daughter wasn't valid, and they had to pay for her passage. And so they arrived at the depot here in Butte, extremely worried about their financial situation and also very, very homesick. So author tells this joke on himself. He says that when um, the train stopped at Butte, he walked around the depot feeling really depressed and lonely. I saw a fellow approaching that looked familiar, he writes. I walked toward him, holding out my hand until it struck a mirror that covered the other side of the room. Uh So after four days of traveling, they arrived at Hamilton on the Northern Pacific Branch line. The Wamsleys were among the very first people, among the first groups of several groups to arrive in 1908. Land agents were waiting to pounce. They tried to get Arthur to sign before they would take him out to see the land, but Arthur refused. And so finally, the, the land agent took them out to the the high bench land that was for sale and author devised this very clever test. They got out there and he told the agent that he had had fish for breakfast and he was very, very thirsty. And so the agent said, well, you'll have to wait till you get back to uh, town to get a drink and at that point he knew that there was no water, not even water to drink on this property. The big ditch was coming, everyone knew, but it would be another two years before the area would actually be irrigated and after that the land agents never bothered him again. He later did much work for the ditch company and he writes, I could hear them laughing and joking about how they were fooling those eastern suckers on that dry land. Those in the offices didn't know that I was one of those suckers. They talked freely of their scheme. So in the three years, in about three years, those who had come with the Walmsleys all lost everything that they had invested. But in the meantime, uh, the Walmsleys found storage for their household goods and rooms to rent in Hamilton, and Arthur immediately began to consider his options. He was a really good carpenter uh, because of his job at Studebaker's. Uh, he was also really smart, and he had taken night classes by correspondence in archi- architecture, learned to make blueprints, and he had also taken advanced math courses um, in um, logarithms, geometry, trigonometry, etc. The eye doctor, whom author never does name in the manuscript, was in immediate need of a barn for uh, to store his property, and so author impressed him greatly with the plans that he drew, and he got the job of building this barn. So Arthur had brought his bicycle with him in the boxcar. Every day he pushed himself and his heavy tool bu- toolbox and his lunch up the steep grade four miles to uh, build this barn. When the barn was finished, the Walmsleys bought a large corner lot. You can see where the star is there and that's the lot that the Walmsleys bought. This is an earlier map of 1896. At this time the Anaconda Company still owned the vacant lots and the real estate agent was very glad to make a good deal to get this large uh, lot sold and with the promise of a large house being built on it. And. Um, it was near the it was near the school and near the business district, but author didn't pay very much attention to the neighborhood itself. And as you can see there, um, female boarding is the euphemism for prostitution, and uh, the red light district was virtually in his backyard. So uh, Clara Smith, who Larry Stray talked about this morning, uh, was an African American woman whom author actually calls Mammy Smith throughout the manuscript and um, she owned one of those houses. By 1909, the red light district had diminished quite a bit. Uh, Perhaps it moved to another location, I don't know, but the only house left there was Mammy Smith's house, and um, the Smiths befriended the the Wamsleys in every way they knew how and they were really good neighbors and they felt really badly that the Wamsleys had been duped into buying that lot. You can see the footprint of their house that uh, um, is taking shape there. The family, the Wamsleys, wanted to take in borders, so they wanted to build a really large house. An author had learned that octagonal houses contain 20% more square footage, and so he was using his builder's magazines and his creativity to design this octagonal house. Octagonal houses are you know we're not really nothing new but they were rare across the United States. The first one, this one here designed by Orson Squire Fowler in the early 1850s became the prototype for other octagonal houses in the United States. So by 19, this is a 1914 map a little bit later than the time I'm talking about but we're talking here about 1910 and you can see that Mammy Smith's uh, house is gone. Well, what happened to it, it actually burned to the ground soon after the census was taken. We, we can find Mammy Smith in the census in the house there uh, in that neighborhood. But then um, Hamilton had this up-to-date firefighting, firefighting equipment and it had men trained to use it. Uh, author writes, the fire chief carried a portable extinguisher around squirting chemicals where he thought it would be effective but that house burned as though they had been squirting kerosene on it (laughs) at least that's what we accused him of doing so the smith's house burned down they came to say goodbye and that was really the end of um, that neighborhood's bad reputation so using all the skills that he had learned at Studebaker's um, and the correspondence courses that he had taken, he set about designing this nine-room house that would serve as an advertisement to his prospective clients. He bought the lumber, the only place he could get it, from the Anaconda Company mill. The company allowed him to buy on credit, even though his lot wasn't paid for yet. Next, it was imperative to find a good mason who would follow orders to lay this very innovative foundation And he found a very fine mason in a former inmate at the uh, Montana State Prison who had helped to build the wall under James McCallman, who was the designer of of some of the the properties on the uh, state prison um, campus and also taught many, many prisoners how to do masonry. He was a really good mason, this guy. And soon the town was talking about the freak who was building the roundhouse in Hamilton. Author writes that it was a great advertisement but it really taxed his knowledge. He wished that the complicated roof with its eight sides and expertly fitted rafters that were so symmetrical and so perfect were down low so people could actually see them. (laughs) He was very, very proud of it. Hamilton was a company town and the Anaconda Company still owned the lumber mill. Most of the town's vacant lots and real estate and the largest department store. Whatever the company sold it made enormous profits. So the Wamsleys ordered everything they possibly could from the Sears catalog. Even with freight costs it was cheaper than buying from the company. So the family bought groceries. They bought uh, all of the uh, author's building supplies, paint, oils, wallpaper, hardware, everything but the lumber and mill work, as well as house furnishings, furniture, and clothing. Everything came from Sears. He had more work than he could do, and so the house was mostly finished in the evenings as he worked on other houses during the day. Instead of plastering the walls, it was common at that time to finish them in matched lumber, and then cover the the walls with building paper. So they were planning to uh, follow that method. And um, according to the uh, Sears catalog's directions for applying wallpaper, which they followed, he and Alma, his wife, got the first room done. It was a beautiful job and they went to bed and the next morning when they got up, the walls and ceiling were like a mountain range. The wet paper had caused the building paper underneath to bulge and it was just a terrible mess. So they had to remove all of the the paper and stash it in the attic so the neighbors wouldn't know that he had made this mistake. And uh, every single penny counted, this really crimped their budget. So they had to further invest in heavy felt wallpaper, which could be actually applied over the wood walls. Um, But this wallpaper was made of pulverized paper and ground animal hair and it, when it was pressed together, these little tiny particles escaped and got into every inch of their clothing and left them itching like mad. Can you only imagine that? But when it was done, it was a first-class job, and during the winter, in his spare time, Arthur used all his finishing skills <coughs> skills on the woodwork and built-in cabinetry. He incorporated the octagon in the chandeliers, the newel posts, the columns dividing the living and dining rooms, um, and it really was a great advertisement for his business. Hamilton was booming at this time, and there was plenty of work. An author advertised, if it's made of of wood, I will make it. He soon drew house plans and competed to build a 13-room house, which was the largest house in Hamilton at the time. I don't know which house that was. I wish I knew, maybe somebody can tell me. Author won the competition, but the house had to be built during the winter, and nobody had ever built a house during the winter, and they didn't think it could be done. And it was unseasonably cold that particular year. So the house was being finished in Tamarack, which is a very notoriously uh, hard wood. And when it's frozen, it's even worse. But Arthur had studied properties, all the different kinds of wood, and he had learned that by soaking it in linseed oil and pre-drilling the nail holes, he could, uh, he could, he could build the, the, the house with much less splittage of the wood and then by staying up at night and taking turns with the owner, uh, they kept fires burning on the plaster, along the plastered walls so that the plaster wouldn't freeze and the walls actually dried. In this way, you know, the house was finished and never before had anyone seen a house built under these kinds of conditions. So when it was finished, it had cost Arthur double time and labor, but it earned him a reputation as the carpenter that weather would not stop. And in this way he got many many contracts and all the work that he could he could do. It took three years to finish his own octagonal house, and during those years the family only had running water but no plumbing. So of course he studied plumbing and by correspondence and uh, pers- persuaded his plumber friend to sell him the necessary supplies so that he could put in all of his own plumbing. He did all of the electrical wiring and added all the modern conveniences. He also installed Hamilton's first beamed ceilings and it's in the dining room and living rooms, which was an idea that came from building magazines. A few years into the teens, he was able to buy an older model Studebaker from a friend who still worked at the factory in South Bend, and it came by rail. Uh, Friends took him out in the hills and gave him driving lessons, and at this point he was able to retire his bicycle, and it allowed him to take contracts all over the county, uh, from Darby uh, to the south to Stevensville, about 20 miles north. So Walmsley reportedly built scores and scores and scores of houses in the region, although I have not found documentation of his prolific work. If anybody knows of any, please tell me. He also built playground equipment for the public schools. He drew the plans for the town's first public drinking fountain. He created an ice skating rink. He made lawn seats for the city park and furniture for lodges and inns. He also dabbled in cement and made bird baths, one for the city park and one for the grounds of the new Carnegie Library. He also did much work on the daily mansion. Although the house was completed in 1910, Arthur refinished and reupholstered many pieces of furniture for Mrs. Daly throughout the teens. He helped build the huge trophy room addition in 1914 and built garden seats, pergolas, arbors, and lawn swings for the mansion grounds. And I think this cabinetry looks very much like his work. I don't know if anybody knows who did the cabinetry in the house, but I'm wondering if it wasn't Arthur Walmsley. So as World War I began to uh, encroach on people's lives, President Hoover suggested as part of the war effort at home that each, am- each family should raise a sheep on their front lawn, um, doing their part to raise wool for, uh, for clothing that was needed by the army. So the Wamsleys procured a sheep, or a lamb actually, and it became daughter Geraldine's pet. They also uh, cultivated victory gardens, as did many people, and, and really were very, uh, very patriotic in their, um, in their support of the war effort, but after the big ditch was finished, the office force left, timber was depleted, the mill was no longer needed, and employees left for work elsewhere. Walmsley notes, this left the town almost like a ghost town. It was but a shadow of the city we found upon arriving here. Property depreciated, resident property was not in demand, and then we, then here, there we were with our elaborate house about the best in town, yet of no value. So, Arthur entered the service. Because he was the sole support and um, married with a wife, uh, his wife had to sign off, and she did that. Uh, He closed his business. They had a a public sale and sold all their household furniture, all the shop equipment. Uh, Geraldine and Alma, his daughter and wife, were um, going to Indiana to wait out the war, and Arthur was headed to San Diego, California to boot camp. So the Wamsleys were about to board the train for their separate destinations, having sold all their earthly possessions when armistice was declared. The family changed their plans. They they left Montana for Los Angeles where they started over. Arthur was again very successful, but this time as an estate collector and not as a builder. He noted that the Bitterroot Valley held good memories. We worked hard there for 10 years, he wrote, of the best part of our lives. We made lots of money. We came away with much less than we took. Experience as a good teacher, we had invested in a western boomtown, but we have never regretted very much our going there and losing our all. If we could just piece together the many accomplishments of this man during these ten years, I think his legacy in Hamilton would be pretty astounding. Um, As it is, the only reminder of the Wamsleys during that heady time in the Bitterroot Valley is the beautiful octagonal house now listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Thank you.